please pronounce your name correctly for me? My name is Nancy Baker Cahill. Lovely. Now, I've done a little research on you, and I'm sure a lot of people have seen like your TED Talks and a bunch of other presentations you've done throughout the world. The, the one thing I didn't hear much about was like your childhood. How did you become creative in the first place? Was it parents' influence, schooling influence? Like, How did you get to that sort of avenue for your career? What a great question. I think my father really encouraged me from a very early age to be an artist. He saw some glimmer of potential. And I think he himself really, had he grown up in a different time, would have been an artist as well. So I think given that he wasn't able to do that, he really inculcated in me a love of an interest in art and then more or less forced me to go to, <laughs> to take lessons at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which I ultimately really loved. But, you know, he really placed a primacy on the importance of seeing and experiencing art in person. So he would take me to exhibitions, not just in Boston, but he would drive all the way to New York sometimes to see them. He also was a politician. And I grew up, I know we just talked about how little you enjoy politics, but actually political life was a very big part of my upbringing, as was science fiction. So I would say my father really had an outsized influence on me artistically and creatively. What did he do? Well, for example, another thing he dragged me to was every science fiction movie that, <laughs> that came out in the 70s and 80s. And I was a voracious reader. So I read a lot of science fiction and I also, and actually all fiction. I just wanted to read everything I could get my hands on. But, you know, I mean, we walked door to door. We got lots of doors slammed in our faces, canvassing for politicians like Mike Dukakis and other. <laughs> Maybe rightly so with Mike Dukakis, but. <laughs> <laughs> I liked Mike Dukakis. He was a great guy. He got a raw deal. But but yeah, so kind of political engagement and thinking about civics was a huge part of my upbringing. And I think that the ways in which science fiction affords newly imagined, maybe not utopias, but protopias in terms of civics and societies probably informed a lot of who I became as an artist. But you know, basically just the mechanics of drawing, you know, there's this was the era of benign neglect, and I had friends who were creative, and we were left to our own devices and did a lot of sort of world building, I must say. And I was very fortunate and privileged to be able to do that with my childhood. Did you ever play Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> no, I wish I had. I, I played a lot of chess, but I was a nerd. Well, I guess Dungeons and Dragons is pretty nerdy too. But no, I know I kind of missed that boat, which I regret. Okay. Just wondering. Did you? Uh, I did play it, though I was never very good at it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was intrigued. But I had lots of friends that played my it was my more my brother's thing. I think I was a little late to it. He he was six years older than me, so he was sort of more on the cusp of the Dungeons and Dragons thing. But so be it. But the other thing I noticed was so that you graduated in nineteen ninety two with your degree, and then I noticed there's sort of a gap. Then suddenly in two thousand seven you sort of like came out into the world kind of thing. Like what were you doing? What, what, why, what's the, what's the, the reason for that there? I went and I lived in a cave and subsisted on berries and twigs. Did you really? I actually had a family. No, no, I wish I had. That would be a much better story. Oh, I was like, that would have been so exciting. <laughs> no, I wish. Yeah, I could have participated in incredible sort of Paleolithic tradition of cave painting and early cinema. But no, I didn't. I got married. I moved out to Los Angeles. For me, it was this sort of shock to the system. I'd never been away really from the East Coast. And as you can imagine, as a fellow East Coaster, it was somewhat antipodal in its 
not just configuration, but culture. And so it took me a while to adjust. And I had children and really sort of subsumed my creative life in service of parenthood. And it was really when my third child was born in 2005 that I realized I had neglected a really crucial part of my identity and of my life. And, you know, we tend to think, and I think a lot of times, particularly women and mothers who've put their careers on hold, tend to think that that's sort of wasted time. And it really wasn't. It was quite generative in its own way. And what I've learned is that, you know, even when you're not making, you're making, you're imagining, you're dreaming, you're grappling, you're chewing on ideas that animate you. And so when I finally sort of made the conscious decision to reinvest in my practice and start working as an artist, it was torrential. I mean, basically, I started working and I haven't stopped since. So it's a notable gap and is unusual. And it's part of what makes, I think, my own path somewhat unorthodox. But, you know, I have no regrets. It's actually not that unusual. I've seen it a lot. And I've had lots of discussions with particularly women who have these gaps because of the same type of thing, raising families and all this kind of stuff. But it's an un it's an unfortunate thing that people see it as a gap. And then like, you could just say you were on sabbatical, you could have said like all kinds of different things. But unfortunately, the art world perceives it as like some sort of horrible thing in a CV to have taken time for family. Oh, yeah. I mean, patriarchy infects absolutely every industry. And, you know, heteropatriarchy combined with capitalism and all of its exigencies pretty much ensures that we don't have any kind of equity in terms of, you know, not only what's expected, but what's celebrated or honored. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm getting ready to have a child in the next couple of years, and I'm sort of wondering if it's going to affect me. But I also have a gap in my CV, not because of raising children, but because I went to the Middle East, and I work figuratively in my artwork, and they did not um, accept that. So like, I have a six-year gap while I was teaching there that I couldn't exhibit my work. I couldn't do anything. So like, there's a huge gap. And so like, I always have to explain that. Whoa. But it's not really a gap. It still says I, I was teaching. Yeah. But that is so interesting. Yeah. The Middle East. Fascinating. Well, I was going to say you're living in immersed in a culture that is so, you know, different from the one that we grew up in. And I think that that itself must have been incredibly generative for you creatively, I would imagine. It, it, it made me very reactive because like for everything that they told me I couldn't do, I wanted to go on vacation and go somewhere else and do that thing that they wouldn't allow me to do. So it was very, um, yeah, very reactive. Well, sometimes I think those like limitations or boundaries that are however real or, or imagined and as that kind of those kinds of attempts at containment can yeah, engender a kind of actually almost greater fuel and motivation I mean, because most artists really don't like being told what to do. So, <laughs> so you know, we tend to, I think, sometimes react in, in opposition. But also, you know, I think that can be very good for the creative process. I have no complaints about it, uh, you know, in, in hindsight. At the time, I had a lot of complaints about it. But now that I'm gone and I legally got out of there without being arrested, I'm fine. <laughs> Amazing. Because that was my big fear. Yeah, of course, of course. Now, one of the things I also know, so you started back in, so let's say, I shouldn't say started back in, you were working two-dimensionally, and then you made that transition to sort of being emphasized in more technology, augmented reality, all that kind of stuff. My, what was the catalyst that sort of said, 
I should take these two-dimensional things that I'm doing and work, and you know these traditional techniques that I'm doing, and then shift over to use very high technology. That seems like a bit of a leap of mediums. It seems like a leap, but it actually isn't. And I think that's a wonderful question. I mean, I, I will say that you know certainly as an undergraduate, my practice was sort of divided between video and drawing. So I'd always had a real interest in sort of the cinematic medium and in technology as an extension of a drawing practice, which is a little bit untraditional. But as you know, technology can be expensive. There are barriers to entry. And so particularly as I was starting out, I didn't immediately dive back into it. I will say that actually predating my entry into VR and drawing in VR, which was born of a really conceptual exigency, I had been basically trying to build immersive environments using video and immersive installation prior to that. So I would take 2D, you know, I did these crazy things where I would create these 2D paintings using spray painting and sculpture and all this sort of like strange language I developed on my own and then animate those things using After Effects and create these big installations with that. So that was one example. I made a video of myself basically being subsumed and consumed by one of my drawings. That was another thing. So I was sort of slowly marching toward VR without knowing that's what I was doing. But it wasn't until I had created a series based on an incredible book on the way trauma actually lives in the body by a feminist philosopher named Susan Bryson. Her book really influenced me deeply. And so I was making these drawings that were incredibly visceral and immersive themselves. They were huge. And she had sort of framed her own trauma, her own sexual assault trauma, and sort of making sense of what was nonsensical about it using philosophical math. And so I just found that to be a very compelling idea. So I'd made this whole series based on that mathematical term called SIRDS or mathematical instance. And the drawings really seemed to have an embodied impact on the people that saw them. They were sort of immediately sort of understood on some unspoken visceral level. And I wanted to really, I mean, no pun intended, augment that. I wanted to actually extend that experience to the viewer by putting them inside the drawing. I had a number of creative fits and starts and sort of stabs at making sculptural drawings, which I've since continued actually kind of looking at one in the background. That none of the listeners can see, but it's okay. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Okay. But I was talking to a curator who said, I was expressing this frustration and she said to me, she also had a background in video, interestingly. She said, why don't you just do the drawings in VR? And, you know, I hadn't thought about VR since I was an undergraduate. And we had learned about it actually in my political theory classes, not in my art classes, but in my political theory classes about kind of empathizing with strangers and with conditions that were otherwise foreign using VR and kind of developing connections that way and interventions perhaps. So anyway, that was sort of the foregrounded, that was sort of what I had, you know, thinking about like, wait, wait VR, you know, I didn't realize it could be used this way. And my brother-in-law had just started working in VR himself and invited me to just try, you know, I think he had like an Oculus Go or something very simple. And I did, you know, I just did like the, all the garden variety VR experiences and just had that sort of, you know, heart pounding epiphany of like, oh my God, this is what I've been waiting for. Like, this is the medium I have wanted to work in 
forever. And I only realize it now that it's I'm standing in it and I'm gesturing and I can't see my body, but I can see my hands. And what does this mean? And, you know, he said, well, you should just download this software and start playing. And that's what I did. And then that led, that begot everything that followed. But it really came out of this very specific need that wasn't about the technology. It was about the idea. And all decisions I've made that are technologically related come from that place. It's sort of idea first and whatever supports the idea second, which I think is important because anytime you engage with technology, in my opinion, I think it's wise to engage it critically and to understand the tools you're using and what their impacts are. Well, that's generally important regardless of what medium you're using. Exactly. But okay, you brought up something about like that VR and all this technology is very expensive, which was one of my big interests, which is like, I love all the stuff you're doing. I've downloaded your app. I'm I'm playing with it as well. So like, what I'm very interested in is like, how do you, and pardon if you don't want to answer this, but like, how do you fund all these things? Because like, none of this equipment is cheap. And, and, and then of course, there's the need for everybody else to have some device to engage with them as well. So there's a part of a barrier there for participation in it. So like, let's start with the, the easier, or what I think is the easier one. Like, how do you get, how do you get the projects funded? Well, first of all, I was very fortunate early on and remain fortunate in having incredible collaborators. And I think the collaboration is always crucial to any really, you know, large scale or ambitious project. I was very lucky to have angel investors in my initial app. I've since had to fund it through a variety of commission projects, some grant money. It all depends. You know, it's very much sort of cobbled together. And, you know, my very first PC was actually this kind of Frankenstein machine that my that same brother-in-law and my son built for me, actually, a kind of Mad Max, you know, I, he just said, you know, go buy a part here, buy this part here. And we kind of cobbled it together. And that was really crucial. Having that tool from the beginning with so much more computing power allowed me to play in a way that I certainly couldn't just on my Mac laptop. That's for sure. So, you know, I frankly have funded a lot of, of my practice with my drawings and selling my drawings. But in the meantime, and as the practice has expanded, and as the technology has gotten more demanding, and ironically, both more accessible and less so, I've had to fund it through different projects. Yeah, because I would imagine, like, if I like, because if, if I sit down and think about like artists and the potential ability to get some sort of, let's say, sponsorship or something like this, a technology-based thing, like there are lots of tech companies, software companies, hardware companies that would gladly sort of participate in that kind of stuff, whereas a painter is not going to be able to get a paint company to sponsor them kind of thing. So like there are a lot of opportunities for being able to get funding more so in that field, I would imagine. There are actually, there are a number of companies that have really generous grants actually, and are very sort of socially impact minded. I don't know if that's, if that's a term, um, they're interested in social impact. And so they really are interested in funding conceptually rigorous projects. I would say the flip side of that coin is that certain types of entanglement with brands often brings with it a kind of, I don't want to say censorship, but, you know, I think there are compromises everywhere. Well, anytime you get a, uh, any sort of funding from any outside source, there's some amount of compromise because they have their morals, ethics, whatever, and you have yours and they may not always match. Right. Alignment not always there. And, you know, they have an image and a brand to protect. And, you know, so I don't know, 
certain brands, they might just seek out work that's, you know, maybe not as controversial. It's up to them, obviously. I can imagine you probably are talking about like Microsoft or any sort of large corporations that don't want anything to tarnish their image kind of idea. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. I totally understand. Yeah, I think there's enough scrutiny now, you know, that they're probably a little wary. But that said, you know, there's no fixed paradigm. So it all depends on the company. There's always new people coming out. So like you don't have to rely on the the mega corporations, even though obviously they have more money to be able to give out as grants than smaller corporations. But in-kind contributions in, in your case is just as helpful, I would imagine, in many ways. Yeah. And I think it speaks to a larger problem around arts funding in general. You know, I think it's so sad how little we value, uh, you know, artistic production and creative problem solving in the United States. I, I'll speak for the country I live in. It's not only not a priority, it's actually, it's completely dismissed and underfunded. And as a result, you have a lot of extraordinarily talented people really competing for the equivalent of, of financial scraps. And whether it's a grant or, you know, some other source of funding, and it's not just disappointing, it, it really requires, in my opinion, like an overhaul. And what I'm really encouraged by, at least out here in Los Angeles, is seeing these artists banding together, like Contemporary Arts League, talking about guilds, talking about unions, talking about basic wage standards. Because the other part of this is that so much of our labor, our artistic labor, is expected for free. We're expected to give it away for free all the time. And that's unconscionable. Well, there are so many grants out there that say, oh, well, you know, the grant is $50,000 or $100,000, but none of it can go to to time. So like they'll, they'll buy you equipment or they'll rent you a space or they'll do this kind of stuff, but they will not pay salaries. And I find that just sort of like, so you'll, you'll fund the objects, but you won't fund the time put into producing the object or the event or whatever. And I find that ridiculous. I'm... One of the reasons I left the United States is that lack of support. Yeah. And not seeing the labor as labor. You know, it's not just we don't just show up, grab our equipment and make something. We need time to ideate. We need time to experiment. We need time to problem solve. We need time to dream. And yeah, the fact that that's not included. And frankly, you know, so many of these applications require a different kind of labor, a labor that not every artist is equipped to handle, which is to say a lot of writing, a lot of tedious, tedious work, right? That's, that amounts to nothing if you don't get it. And what it can also amount to is having ideas mined. It's extractive. It's an extractive process. It's infuriating, I think, also to put out this much of your own kind of creative capital and not have, like, for example, a response when you ask for feedback when you don't get it. So, yeah, I have a real axe to grind. <laughs> I'm completely 100% on your side on all I'm of that. I'm not alone. Yeah, no. Yeah, it, it it's a pro, it's a broken system in many ways. I mean, like for instance, in the United States when I was there, there I I find it it's just like it's like you know how they the middle class is going away and so there's the, you know, the 1% and then there's 
people at the poverty line and there's very little middle class. I feel like the arts grants have gone that way as well. There's the NEA grants, the NEH grants, the really big grants. And then there are the local regional grants, which are like less than $500 kind of thing. And there's very little grant funding in the middle for, you know, good production, solid production, but maybe not NEA grant worthy production. And that's a huge problem also. So like just as much as the middle class has gone away in America, period, it's also going away in the funding structure as well, which I find very unfortunate. Yeah, it's not sustainable. How do you sustain a practice? And what ends up happening is you make sacrifices and you end up hustling. You know, many people give up their practice or they end up, you know, all of their creative energy is siphoned into teaching, you know, or whatever. I mean, you can to make it work, but fundamentally, I couldn't have said it better. It is a broken system. And uh, it's just, yeah, I don't know. But I do, I am really encouraged by the fact, I don't know, something snapped in the pandemic. And I think, at least I, I look to my peers, who I admire and respect so much. And, you know, all the conversations we had were really around sort of deciding, yeah, I don't think we need to put up with that anymore. We need to demand better for ourselves. And we need to teach people how to treat us. I'll tell you, when I was God, what was I, 19 or 20 years old, I went to Belize, um, the old British Honduras down in Central America. Beautiful country, small country, mind you, but like beautiful country. And uh, one day our, our teacher took us to the National Artists Studio. Now, first of all, they have a national artist. That's amazing right off the bat. Secondly, this artist is so, na- they are so proud nationally. They put his artwork on on the currency. Oh my God. (laughs) So like, that's how important art is to that culture. And like, when I left there, I was like, fuck, I hate America. Like, like if America could do it, they would put a baseball star or a movie actor or something on our currency. Whereas a country like Belize puts their national artist, which is amazing in and of itself, on their currency. I really did not want to live in America after that. Yeah, I completely understand why. Yeah, there's a true bankruptcy, speaking of currency. It's just a real cultural bankruptcy, unfortunately. And it's amazing that the arts persist the way they do here, almost in spite of it. Well, sadly, it's it, the the reason why the arts has been able to, to continue on is because there's those great tax deductions that are available for the rich to be able to to write off donations and sometimes even like they'll buy a piece of art and then donate it to a museum. And so an artist gets paid, but then the person who bought it gets a tax deduction. And so it ends up being to their financial benefit again. I mean, there's so many bad systems that are broken in that. I mean, like I have recently was talking to somebody about free ports. Do you know about these things? Yeah, yeah. What really good friend of mine out here who's an absolute genius, speaking of tech, developed this wildly subversive and amazing exhibition in VR called Freeport, where he actually mapped an exhibition in a Freeport and then sold the whole exhibition as an NFT and it benefited all the artists. It was wonderfully subversive and and artist focused and artist centric. But yeah, I actually, I was ignorant of Freeports until he created that exhibition. And now I hear them uh, about them all the time. Someone else was, I just uh, met a documentary filmmaker who's done a series of documentaries on art crime. And that's, she went into, you know, the role of Freeport. Anyway, it's absolutely fascinating and horrible. <laughs> I mean, it is. It, in, and completely expected. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the problem is, is basically it's the rich dictating all the, the ways that it happens. But 
Yeah, the Freeport things fascinate me. I, I couldn't believe. I mean, I knew Switzerland was sort of in and of itself a Freeport kind of thing, but the fact that these Freeports exist everywhere, like there's one in like New Jersey, there was one in Dubai, like they're all over the world. I'm like, how the fuck do they get away with this shit? Like that that's the point of tax laws so that they can't do things like this. And then they make something that's basically a really big loophole. Well, I think that that question of accountability is so crucial and so underexamined in this moment. I mean, it's not underexamined. People have been protesting this for, you know, I mean, we've had all kinds of movements demanding accountability, particularly of late, particularly in the last five years. But it is amazing. I was just talking to someone about this last night. Like you look at Steve Bannon gets subpoenaed and he just kind of says no. And somehow that's okay. Where we know if it were anyone else and they were subpoenaed, if they didn't show up, they'd be arrested. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, so to your question, like, I don't know. It's sort of like at my advanced age, I still feel a kind of childlike astonishment at the injustice. I don't understand. Just to be clear, we're approximately the same age. <laughs> 70s children. <laughs> yeah, you are not advanced. Just, I refer to it as I am older. I'm older. I'm not old, but I'm older. No, I don't feel old at all. Maybe it's arrested development. Yeah, I don't feel the years in aggregate. And and too bad, yeah, I might be able to impart more wisdom if I did, but... I guess I'm past outrage and I'm just sort of astonished that that the law is applied as unevenly and unequally as I guess, you know, people who have been historically oppressed have known from the beginning and continue to experience it on a daily basis. But it's just nauseating. Well, I mean, t- talking about like taxes and freeports and all that shit, one thing that I've always sort of like never understood why it exists this way and i'm wondering why i would like you want to talk about a way to change the 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 paradigm of how arts is funded and stuff we as artists we'll sit down we'll make a work we'll sell it for five thousand dollars somebody will buy it for five thousand they'll turn around and sell it for ten thousand dollars to some other person but the artist doesn't receive any of that ten thousand dollars why is it that artists don't receive any resaling stuff like because you brought up NFTs, I also know that in NFTs, they built in that structure so that the artist continues to get money every time it's sold, which I think is magnificent. Why, why has that not ever been present in contemporary, in just like art production period? Because there are so many art, so much art that's sold for millions and millions of dollars that the artists see none of that money. Well, I think, you know, there have been some laws. I know there was a law briefly in California that was intended to ensure some sort of royalty to the artist. But in practice, of course, it's never enforced. And I think that's part of why the NFT craze was, you know, a lot of people said, well, it's just greed. It wasn't just greed. It was a lot of artists looking at new systems of accountability and saying, wait a second, I can get paid automatically without an intermediary. I don't have to chase someone down. And this is part of that sort of epiphany of the pandemic. I think a lot of us realized like we were tired of constantly having to chase down funds that we were owed and remunerated for work that we had agreed contractually to produce. And I think as the technology continues to evolve and develop, you know, blockchain offers you know, enormous potential in terms of systems of accountability. And, you know, we talk about smart contracts. My 
the longtime collaborator and art lawyer, Sarah Odenkirk, thinks they're not smart at all. And we've been creating a lot of projects that sort of unpack what that contract might be and how could we make it more robust? How could we make use it conceptually to kind of push the envelope of what's possible? But I will tell you that when that system works, it's beautiful. The problem is for you to get paid that royalty, the resale has to happen on the same chain. And not everybody is going to behave ethically. And so while it's a beautiful promise, and my hope is that it's honored down the line and has sort of domino effect, there are no guarantees. And because, and I think decentralization is a beautiful concept, but because of decentralization, there's also less accountability in that sense. So I don't know. I think arguably what hopefully this has done is actually introduce this idea, reintroduce an idea that, as you say, should have been there from the beginning, that the artist should profit from their labor and, again, their creative investment and imagination and bespoke vision. There was a conversation I sat in on, actually, it was an NFT conversation, and we were sort of talking about, okay, well, how much of a percentage should be part of the secondary? And one of the people we were talking to was sort of talking the numbers down. And a fellow artist friend of mine said, can we pause for a minute and acknowledge that without us, there is nothing to sell? You don't have anything to sell without the artist. So let's start from that place before we continue talking about anything, you know, in terms of percentages. And I was so amazed and refreshed by that. And I continue to sort of hold that in my heart and in my head when these conversations come up. Well, I mean, like in the traditional gallery structure, theoretically, an artist gets approximately 50% of any sale price. But in the NFT world, it's not that. It's down less. It's like 2%, 5%. And I think the maximum I saw was like 10%. So it's, I mean, I don't understand why they did that. <laughs> it's just, if we didn't make the thing. Oh, right. Oh, I see what you're saying. So wait, are you talking from the perspective? Sorry, if I'm confused, you're talking from the perspective of the intermediary or of the artists themselves? No, I will fully admit right off the bat. Um, I am uh, only smart enough to, to say certain words when it comes to NFT conversations. I started looking down the whole rabbit hole of NFTs. And personally, by the time I figured out how to do it all, I basically felt like it was a corporation that said, hey, we've got this blockchain thing and we could just make some money. Why don't we make money off of artists? And so it felt like a, them basically making money off of us instead of something that was designed for us as a as a, the primary goal. So I, I, that's a problem that I have with it. Second of all, of course, I feel like it's a bit of a money laundering scam, but that's just a personal opinion. I have no proof of that. I just want to be clear so that nobody gets offended that like I have no proof, but I just sort of feel that way. Well, you're not wrong. I think that there's a wonderful, actually, maybe your listeners would want to watch this. There's a wonderful YouTube from 2018. It's a short 30 minute explanation of what Web3 is by a guy named Juan Benet, uh, B-E-N-E-T and excellent Egu. And, or maybe no accent, I don't know, but that's how I picture it in my head. And he, I believe is the founder of IPFS. And you know, he talks about what the promise of Web3 really was and what that sort of truly decentralized protopic vision might look like. And it sounds awesome. That's not exactly how it's turned out, right? And 
I think that, you know, when you talk about, you know, money schemes, I think what's really dispiriting and really tough and something that all artists should consider if they're going to at least work with Ethereum versus like there are certain proof of stake blockchains, which are not the gas costs almost nothing. And that's a real opportunity for artists. You took at a site like Hicketnunk, which uses Tezos, and that's not going to be as financially burdensome as minting something on Ethereum. If you mint something on Ethereum, you're going to pay gas fees that oftentimes cost more than, you know, maybe what it took to produce the work. I mean, it, and, and there's no guarantee it will sell, you know, who's benefiting. Okay, wait. So here's my other soapbox about NFTs at this moment. So again, this is from an outsider's perspective because I have not participated in them yet is I feel like they're a bit of a like high school popularity contest because the the people who seem to do really well on it are celebrities and people with lots of followers on Instagram and whatever. So like if you're basically if you're already good with social media or or Indiegogo or or any of those sort of like uh, crowdfunding things and you have a large following of people on the internet, then you will do amazingly with NFTs. However, if you are a talented artist with amazing craftsmanship and skill and great ideas, but are not good at that kind of stuff, you're not going to do well on NFTs. That's how I feel. Now, I don't know if that's true. So please tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I would push back on that a little bit. The good news is that there are a number of curated, thoughtfully, thoughtfully curated platforms cropping up. And I think that there is a maybe slow growing, but growing audience of maybe more traditional collectors who are intrigued at this idea of what it might mean to collect digitally scarce goods or artworks and how that manifests through this sort of, if you want to think of the NFT as a receipt for that purchase, but the proof of ownership becomes sort of interesting to them. It's taken longer and I think it will continue to evolve. But I agree with you that, you know, and this is true for everything, right? It, there's always a kind of rich get richer in capitalism. I mean, this is late stage capitalism at its worst. But I see a lot of really thoughtful work being made in the space, a lot of conceptual work being made. And there are wonderful platforms like, you know, that are cropping up as we speak. And I've been fortunate enough to participate in some of them. And I think that the artist community that is growing as well, I think more and more traditional artists are beginning to see some of the potential. Now, there are a lot of techno skeptics, and I have equal amount of respect for them as well. I don't think there are any easy answers. And I think when you really push into, you know, environmental concerns and looking at proof of work versus proof of stake, you know, there are all kinds of questions. You know, I thought forever that proof of stake was the only way to go. And I will confess a certain, I sort of felt a kind of not moral superiority, but I felt like, okay, I can do this without fretting too much about the environmental impact, only to understand that there's actually you know, an outsized benefit to people with who already have a tremendous amount of stake in that, you know, literally have a higher stake in the success, which is to say, again, a sort of rich get richer scheme. So, you know, it's complex, it's nuanced. I think I'm really interested in the potential as it relates almost metaphorically to systems of accountability back to this idea of fairness, honestly, and equity. But again, you know, human nature pretty much infects everything. And so does greed. So it's the ongoing Sisyphean task to push it up the hill, but I think it's still worth doing. Well, you've 
done some NFTs. What was your experiences with that? I've had uniformly positive experiences, but I've also been really fortunate to collaborate with super thoughtful people and be in rigorous dialogue with other artists who are kind of grappling with a lot of the things we just touched on. So I have tried to be very intentional and picky around how I engage in this space. I think less can be more, but it's not something that I'm afraid of. It's something I just, again, want to approach very intentionally. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to do it, but I, I, it's basically like, I feel like I'm, I don't, I'm sophomoric in my knowledge of it for sure. Like I, I, I think I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be successful. Well, I think that that's all just a matter. I mean, gosh, the first time, I mean, I've been interested in art and blockchain since I would say around 2018, when I first got my first crypto wallet. And, you know, but I didn't really understand the nuances at all of this space at first. And a lot of it is honestly just like reading, listening, and talking, and grappling, and experimenting. And I think it wouldn't take you very long to feel more fluent and perhaps confident you know? Yeah. I don't know. What's the expression? Dip your toe in or whatever. And there are any number of ways. I mean, we can talk offline if you want about like how that might manifest, but you know, I was fortunate to have a lot of, you know, access to people are sending back and forth, a lot of articles and interviews and you sift through them and you sort of figure out what makes sense to you. It's just a whole nother thing. Like, I don't even understand how the art world works. Now there's this virtual art world and like, so it's just like another thing to learn. <laughs> So, yeah. Well, I here's the thing. I think it's worth learning because I don't think it's going away. And the quote art world, I think, has been shaken deeply by it. And I find the traditional art world quite conservative and risk averse. I, I am shocked. <laughs> but really, I mean, it's so disappointing. <laughs> I mean, come on. If anybody is is... A, a risker it should be the artists and art the arts world should be the risk takers in society in supporting the risk takers but sadly money yeah no money is yeah yes but the, the key part of that phrase was should be yeah should be i think it all it's still sort of shaking down we'll see what's where things sort of settle ultimately after the initial just insanity and i still think like you that there are I mean, I would agree with you that there's a lot of work that's not, in my opinion, you know, rigorous, but I, you know, if other people see value in it, who am I to say? All right. I want to go back to something you brought up earlier, which was about having to write text for grants and funding and things like this. This is one of the banes of my existence. I, I absolutely hate it so much. Like, I mean, we went to art school to be able to be thinkers, to be able to create visual expressions of our ideas because we didn't want to write about these things. And then now in contemporary society, we are forced to write about these things, which we have tried to express visually in order to have them supported, funded, whatever kind of thing. So you seem to do it well because you seem to have a lot of projects that you're able to get partners and, and grants and support and all this kind of stuff. So like, how are you approaching it that other people, well, such as me, may not be doing as well as you? Well, look, I mean, first of all, I remember I had a friend who's an artist point out that, you know, we would never ask a writer 
to draw a picture of what their book was about, right? When I was in college, I they this people had a grant. I don't know what it was, and they said, "Please write a, one page about your artworks." And so I wrote in really large font. If I wanted to write about my artwork, I would have been a writer. That was it. That filled the whole page. <laughs> That's excellent. Obviously, I did not receive the grant. Well, I hope they accepted it. No, <laughs> but it felt good to say. <laughs> Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, look, I mean, I would say I am a decent writer. And the only reason why is because I do love language, I'll confess. And I love reading. And I read a lot. I read voraciously. And that, I think, really helps in terms of flow. I'm also super fortunate to be surrounded by talented writers who are generous enough to look at my work sometimes and edit it. And I don't have ego in it because it's not my primary means of expression. And so I assume going in that things will need some clarification. But I will say this about writing, and I'm not going to say this on behalf of grants, but when I've had to write essays, I've been fortunate enough to be invited to write essays on certain projects. And what it really does is allow me to crystallize my ideas and really articulate and finely tune that initial ideation into a kind of coherent crazy, if you will. On the other hand, there's no substitute. You can add context, you can add depth, you can add sort of refractions and, and nuance to what you're doing. But at the end of the day, you know, my hope is that people will respond to the work on a visceral level in that sort of ineffable, in the poetics of what it is to engage with a work in your body, in your heart, in your mind, and that it wouldn't necessarily require or warrant additional exposition. Well, I mean, that's one of the things like there are so also so many different versions of what we have to be able to write because like there would be, a, let's say, an artist statement, which is a contextual thing that's supposed to connect with them to try and make it so that viewers are empathetic or sympathetic or in some way engaged in the work. And then there's a different style of writing like grant writing or applications to residencies or any of this kind of stuff where it's more factual like this is what i've done this is how i'm going to accomplish it dot 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 kind of like step-by-step -step process so that they can picture it in their head because this thing hasn't been created yet kind of thing so like not only do we have to be talented and skillful in our art creation but we have to be multi-talented in our ability to not only write about our works but to write about our works in different sort of vernaculars and different techniques and this is driving me nuts Again, it is an outsized requirement and request of group of people that have wildly varying backgrounds, exposure to, I mean, you might not have had the great fortune of fantastic education that may come at a disadvantage. There is so much inequity built in to these expectations. And there are artists who can, you know, afford grant writers and don't have to ever put pen to paper. You know, I don't know. It's part of that overall problem that we identified in the beginning of this being a group of people who are asked, so of whom so much is asked. And it was funny, yesterday I was having a talk with a, with a friend of mine who's an artist, a brilliant artist, and she said, you know, why is it on us to be the problem solvers? Why is it on us to address these sort of global geopolitical challenges or local challenges or whatever? Why can't we just make things 
because we want to make them. That's the role. Like the poet doesn't have to answer all those questions. And, you know, and why can't that spectrum include all of it? You know, and I guess we were talking contextually about sort of our current moment. But, you know, she was saying, we're not truth tellers necessarily. Why do we have to be the truth tellers? Why can't our stories be the thing or our fictions or our imaginations inspire people, you know? And I think that also points to a very specific, maybe substrate of artistry right now that sort of demands that. But it was just interesting to me to think about how much of what we do can feel burdened for these different reasons. And some of them are concrete, like writing, and some of them are abstract, like just sort of social or cultural expectations. Well, I mean, artists as a general whole throughout history are the ones who are sort of the mirrors to society. We're the ones that point out the issues, the problems, the concerns, whereas most people in society just want money so that they can have a good time. Like they just want to buy a house or, you know, go on vacation or get a car. Whereas artists want to actually try to make a change or a difference or an impact kind of thing. And so like we have, we do have a bit of a burden on us in many ways that most people in society do not have, which is fine. We we've chosen this. It's not like we, we didn't know this was coming when we chose the arts as our career, but we need to have support. Like, I mean, th- there were so many times in history where artists were better supported. I'm not going to say necessarily well, but even like the age of patronage, like, my God, I would love if patronage would come back. That's such an amazing idea. You know, again, back to this sort of equity issue, if it could be distributed equitably, that would be amazing if it were built into, yeah, systems that supported a broad number of people. I think I guess I suppose there are, we have a different, a sort of warped version of patronage now, but as you pointed out earlier, it may benefit just a few people versus a lot of people. And I do think that's a problem. And, and just to be clear, you know, I don't think that artists should ever abdicate any responsibility in terms of if they feel that they should, you know, provide a mirror. And I think it, I agree with you, it happens naturally. I think my friend's point was more just sort of that, you know, so much is asked And if you're going to look at an artist for guidance or something, we should be able to also celebrate these moments of inspiration that maybe are not connected to those things directly and to support, you know, all kinds of creative production. I personally have done so much sort of interventionist work and collaborated with artists, you know, who are thinking and acting politically a lot of the time. So that's very close to my heart, but I just would never want to apply that broadly to, you know, all artists as an expectation. It seems like collaboration is a big thing in your career. I mean, and a lot of artists do collaborations these days. I don't think they were as popular, let's say 30 years ago, but it seems like a very big sort of progress because like there's the old romantic idea of the artist, tortured artist in their studio kind of bullshit. And then these days it seems like collaborations and like, um, God, what are they called? They're like associations here in Europe and collectives and things like this seem to be sort of the way that things are happening more uh, actively, I would say, even these days. So like, I guess my question to you would be like, what, what constitutes for you a good collaboration? Because I know you've probably had some people or some circumstances that were 
bad collaborations. Oh yeah, there have been a few for sure. <laughs> but the majority have been amazing. And I think it, it comes from a sort of, well, either those incredibly fruitful collaborations have been interdisciplinary in nature, which I think is beyond thrilling. I so much more curious about you know other types of work than my own. But the most fruitful collaborations really are where there are one, two, or three of us, or multiples of us, bring something very specific to the table with a shared goal. And originally, when I started this wonderful fellowship at the Berggruen Institute, I was talking with one of the directors, Nils Gilman, and he was talking about T-shaped collaboration, that the best collaborations, because they were doing sort of AI artist collaborations, and he was saying that the best kind of collaborations are T-shaped, which is to say, you know, if you think about the letter T, you've got the central column, that's your subject expertise, that's your area where you are fully confident and have, you know, a certain skill set. But then the, the outstretched arms of the T are the, those places of overlap with other people and with other types of subject expertise. And it's the magic sort of happens in those overlapping, you know, sections. And I have found that very much to be true. That, And I would also argue that my best collaborations tend to come from a similar ethos, a kind of adventurous ethos, a risk-taking ethos, and a hardworking ethos. So I think, you know, the best collaborations tend to feel like everyone is sort of put in equal measure and we are all mutually benefiting from our different skill sets and understanding deeply that it is the combination of those skills in concert that create this sort of magical and product performance experience, whatever it is, even conversation. Well, I mean, look, what I get, start thinking about when I'm hearing all this stuff is like, what is your story? what I call like studio uh, work schedule like, like, I mean, cause you, you have, I'm sure a physical studio for making your two, your two dimensional works, but then you also have your sort of digital studio where you sit in front of a computer for hours on end. So like, do you, are you the kind of person that is, cause okay, I have a belief. So bear with my opinion on this. There are two kinds of artists in the world. They're the kinds that sit around and think and then they're inspired and then they work for like, you know, weeks on end for that, that thing. And then they don't go back in the studio again for like a month or so. And then there are the people who are in the studio every day, nine to five, theoretically, working all the time constantly. And they, you know, they take weekends off and they have nights off and they take a vacation and all this kind of stuff. So like, are you more of a inspirational, like going in the studio person or do you just work every day? I work seven days a week. Amen. I, I understand that. I don't leave the studio. I mean, COVID has, of course, changed everything. So I just love, you know, studio visits every week, making work in the studio. So now I'm mostly alone in the studio, although I do have a studio manager, but that's offsite. They work offsite. And my studio is so small at this point that it's, you know, it's not a problem. But I do crave, I will tell you, those periods of quiet. I crave the time. I know when I have had time off or been forced to take time off, I tend to just read as much as I can and think and write in my journals. But I haven't had that time recently. And I crave it because it so feeds and nourishes the practice. So I mean, I'm lucky I have great conversations. And that feeds a certain part of it. But I do think that that quiet and the sitting and the contemplating is crucial. So yeah, I'm really looking for I'm trying to carve out a couple of weeks in December to do that. And then probably after that, I'll go ramp right back into the sort of nonstop work schedule. But I would like to adapt the practice more toward that kind of a model because I think it often yields 
one isn't better than the other, but I do think that that kind of slowing down is really incalculably valuable to really deepening work. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That was such a fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed and learned something from our conversation. After all, I am a professor. I like learning. I've learned a lot myself about many of the things that I did wrong in my career thus far and many of the things that I need to put more effort into moving forward. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in becoming more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would also like to thank Ron Helt for their comment and five-star rating. Thank you, Ron Helt. R-N-O-H-E-L-T-T. Don't know how to pronounce it correctly. I hope I got it right. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe as well. You can subscribe on Apple's podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by my childhood friend, Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes, or you can find out more information about the podcast on Instagram at thewisefoolpod, or on our website, which is simply wisefoolpod.com